Okay, so last episode when we were trying to just talk about ourselves, which is a thing um, in general uh, we're good at, or if you're doing a podcast, it's sort of a prerequisite. We got on a digression talking about different types of Jews. I don't know why I said it like that. And so this episode is that you'll hear like little bits of repetition from the last episode just for context. And we hope you enjoy. There ain't too many places The rabbi goes, if you do know the melody, sing along. And it's like, there's no judgment if you don't, for people that don't. Mm-hmm. But the melody is also like, ay, 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 And you're like, is it? Is, is that? We all, I guess we all know the melody because it's the noises our grandpa made when he was sitting down. <laughs> So I, I emphasized this last time we spoke about it, um, and I just wanted to re-emphasize it even more because I, I really not only think it's important, I try to live my life by this. All of these labels are just that. They're just labels manufactured in modern times by regular people. And especially from the Jewish religion standpoint, but even beyond that, I think from a Jewish societal standpoint, it's critical to realize that the segments of this umbrella and all of these labels need to be used sparingly in a very limited way. In my opinion, a Jew's mentality needs to be that we're one Jewish people and that the good in everybody needs to be celebrated. Every Jewish person has a Jewish soul and it simply doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter. So that's on the one hand and that hand is definitely heavier than the next hand that I'm about to introduce. These labels exist for a reason and that is oftentimes when people say, oh, I don't, I don't buy labels. I don't go into labels. This is all bullshit. What they're really saying is that everybody needs to agree with me. It's like, oh, there is no discrepancies in the Jewish people. Everybody is Orthodox or everybody is progressive or everybody's reform. And to me, if you use that bumper sticker as a cudgel for the elimination of other people's opinions, then you're kind of dabbling on a misuse of a really holy and true sentiment. In other words, let me speak from my perspective and not put words into other people's mouths. But if you're an observant rabbi and you believe that halacha is a real thing and this is how a Jew should act, and you also believe that if you're going into a temple that has an organ, let's just give a very particular example, having an organ in the shul is not shul-like in my opinion. So if I go on this really broad manifesto and say, oh, there is no such thing as labels, we're all one Jewish people, then how in the next sentence can I say, 
oh, this temple having an organ is wrong. Well, clearly over there, you are acknowledging that there are differences and not just that there are differences, but some differences you're not okay with. And the same is in the reverse. So it's critical to, on the one hand, truly believe in the depths of your heart that these things shouldn't matter from the religion standpoint and from society standpoint. But you also have to say that, yeah, differences do exist and we shouldn't just completely negate their entire existence for the sake of an idea of society that only fits our definition of it. I think there are three camps and the middle camp is the right way. This is my opinion, but it's the hardest and the smallest group. And that is that differences are everything and therefore we can't unite. And then there's the other side that say, there are no differences, we're all exactly the same and therefore our uniting is almost technical simply because there are no differences, even though I don't know how someone could espouse that belief that there are no differences. And I'm not even talking about in the Jewish community. I'm talking about humanity, across humanity. And I think the middle group is that our differences very much exist and they're real, but they shouldn't matter to the extent that we still can't get along with one another or even beyond getting along with one another. So then you have the two sides. I don't know which, from within and from without, who's saying, okay, we're all similar. And now you might have one side where somebody says, okay, I see that partition between men and women. I'm a reformed Jew. I, this, I was saying this to friends. Uh, we went to New Year's services and I was talking about Chabad, how it felt like there's a place where you can be reform or <laughs> sub-reform or wherever in that umbrella pyramid in an orthodox space. Because it's orthodox rituals it's it's hitting the it's hitting all the all the beats you're getting the real mm -hmm. i think some of my favorite parts are when the when the, the rabbi goes if you do know the melody sing along and it's like there's no judgment if you don't for people that don't mm -hmm. but the melody is also like and you're like is it is is that we all I guess we all know the melody because the noises our grandpa made when he was sitting down. Yeah, uh, Is that like literally? I'm I'm probably saying this, and you're probably like, yeah, well, that's Cole Nidre. You know what I mean? You're probably exactly. like, yeah, 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 also, I love, Adam, that melody that I just sang. Yeah. It's Napoleon's March, but something tells me that Napoleon is currently in his grave. Like, it wasn't that one, you know? <laughs> this is, that oi, oi, oi was kind of what we were trying to get rid of inside the Jews. <laughs> I hate the remix. I hate the remix. Uh, that's excellent. This is always brought to you by Neuroses. Neuroses come in several fantastic flavors like anxiety, OCD, 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 and depression. Neuroses, we're here to stay, baby. Get used to it. But that's where we gotta start, right? It's like, you think about this pyramid of religiosity among Jews, and this is kind of how I conceptualized it or how I might tell somebody about it. You got reform and then conservative and modern orthodox and ultra-orthodox and these different types of ultra-orthodoxy and then below reform you have people like me where the town santa was hired to come to the house at random times when you're a little <laughs> kid to try and you know hey this is still real I swear to god i remember hearing this door open and coming to the top of the stairs and looking down and seeing the santa walking through the front door and i went uh, no 
no, 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 no. Santa goes down a chimney. Even I know that. He's not real. You know, and that was it. That was it for me. But he still came. Did he come with Juice for Jesus pamphlets? Slip them under your little nose? No. I think part of that was just this separation of anything Jewish from these other holidays. Like, there was no conflict. There was no conflict, at least in my parents' mind, between being Jewish and doing a Christmas thing or Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. That's fun. It's just an excuse to go walk around in a field and look for plastic that has chocolate inside it. It's like, okay. But the amount of shit I got from, you know, friends that went to temple, you just, you know, your average American reformed Jew. Here we go. Yeah, this motherfucker had Easter eggs. Really? Oh my god! Whoa. To this, to this day, to this day, I didn't know the reform movement was capable of that. But they say that the, in the East Coast, they tend to be a little bit more, I don't know, traditional, rigid. I don't know the word for that. I, I, I don't know if it's a reform movement. I think it's reform twelve-year-olds. Yeah, which who are vicious. Yeah, that's true. You described it as a pyramid. Just to go back to that, I see it more as an umbrella. Okay. And from a soul standpoint, it's just one Judaism. It's just one Jewish people and Jews that don't even know they're Jewish and definitely do nothing about it would still be under that umbrella. So that's from the religion standpoint. I really like that as a as a shift in conceptualization because, I mean, first of all, because pyramids and Jews don't have like exactly <laughs> the greatest connection, you know what I mean? But also, yeah, get getting away from the idea of a hierarchy and this and this and this. That just uh, feels much more poetically nice. Yeah, for sure. Is the day when I won't forget But back to what you were saying, there's definitely elements of, let's say, a reform temple, like, for example, a silly, shallow example would be an organ, right? So if I'm halacha observing, an organ isn't consistent with observing Shabbat, and many reform temples will have an organ. And, and on the other side, a mechitza, and an orthodox shul, mechitza is this division between the genders, and it allows for additional focus for each gender, respectively. But I understand if someone is very much an adherent of current modern feminism, then that might be troubling to that person. But my point is that these differences represent relatively, relatively minor differences in comparison to the things that we have in common, namely, especially if you're somewhat theological, a soul, right? Or a belief in God, or the ability to connect, or joy, or even a lot of the more ritualistic Jewish practices we still have in common. So it's just incumbent on the person not to say, I don't have a problem with an organ, or for the others to say, I don't have a problem with mechitza. That would be disingenuous. You could be honest and say, I have a problem with each respectively. But to say, despite that, I'm going to try to fixate on the majority of things that we have in common. Yeah, I think that's completely true. It's just like... If you're in a couple, which arguments are you going to have and how meaningful are they going to be? And if you say there's no point in ever, then you never, you never really evolve. You never get closer. You never kind of push at the little grainy bits and find a way right. to roll more smoothly. I, I, I think, I mm -hmm. think the mechitza is a, is a, is a really good 
example, new word for me, but of the kinds of things that I think would create dissonance between sort of your world and mine in the places where those Venn Mm -hmm. diagrams don't overlap, that, Mm -hmm. well, for starters, I guess to give people a sense, like the dividing screen, it's a screen. It can look a little different in different places, but it's sort of like the kind of changing screen that you'd see in a movie from like the 1920s where the woman's getting changed and her like servant is bringing her and she's like, I don't, this is not the dress I want to wear for this evening or whatever. (laughs) Like you can see, you can see people through it or over it. If you're my height, you're not, it's not, you know, it's not that, but it's very much there. Women sit on this side, men sit on this side, which is just for literally whatever happens practically, it's the symbolism that is very severe. And so from the inside and from the outside, from the inside, you could have, say, my friend's wife who isn't Jewish and is there and is going, whoa, what is happening? Or very kind of reform Jew or progressive American who's saying, I can't, I I just... I, I, I don't I don't know what to do. This is like categorically against how I think anything should be organized. So that's mm-hmm. one side. And then the outside is like, well, if people take all Jews together, then they go, eh, these Jews, they're people, they have no, I don't want to say respect because you can take this division in a million ways and that's like a whole other thing. But just like mm-hmm. they just segregate genders in this simplistic mm-hmm. and, and old school way and don't care and don't think about it. And that's the Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. But even within mechitzas, there's there's varying levels, even with regards to height or the transparency of the mechitza. You know, right. certain places in Bnei Brak, there's six feet of walls, like a Trump level wall, broken glass and barbed wires between the two. And no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, this is what I'm talking about. Normally to me, I guess I've only ever seen it as something that is mostly symbolic. You're standing on right. one side. You, you you know you can be whispering across and looking at somebody in the face. But yeah, yeah. it's yeah. most Jewish stuff. The laws are the laws, and everything else is a loophole. Uh, then it comes Figure down to like, out. what did they have at Target that fit the <laughs> that fit the Torah? You know, they're they're like, where's your where's your Torah? Where's your ultra orthodox halacha Jewish law section? They go come in the we haven't nobody's asked in years. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, come back. Don't say anything. You see like skeletons in there. <laughs> One guy who's reading the price tag and he just like he's he's been trying to get his glasses on for 300 years. That's how he <laughs> <laughs> So from the religion standpoint, just so you know, there's just one Jewish people. The religion, before sociologists came and muddied the water, sorry, doesn't look at discrepancies among Jews. But if you want to get into the differences that Jews themselves have adopted for themselves and their families, I'd look at it like this. So a sociologist wouldn't have the ability to know about a Jew that doesn't know 
themselves that they're Jewish. So from that standpoint, an academic, let's study the Jewish people standpoint, it would be impossible to include them in the umbrella sure. right, in that sense. Mm -hmm. A Chabad rabbi's wildest dreams is to come across a Jew that didn't know they were Jewish and then get them involved in their Judaism. Obviously, again, the religion considers all Jews part of the people. But from the, let's look at Jews under this magnifying glass, it would be hard to include someone that they themselves don't know they're Jewish. So under this umbrella, I'd say there's the unaffiliated Jews that do genuinely nothing with their Judaism. I wouldn't put you in that category. Like I wouldn't put your upbringing in that category. The very knowledge of cultural Judaism, book, the awareness, the identifying with the minority, like all of those dynamics are very much at play in your upbringing that's just my guess just from knowing you for a while sure. but then there's people under this umbrella that really i'm not going to say are active assimilationists but they're doing everything that an active assimilationist would prescribe right that's one segment of the umbrella in today's day and age they're few and far between there's a lot of reasons historically why that group is so few and far between but it's pretty much basically because they were successful whether they were actively assimilating or passively assimilating if you act like that in one generation your kids won't be under the umbrella whatsoever so that's why sure. it just dies at one generation, in which case they're no longer under the sociological umbrella. That's one segment. The next segment is where I'd put you is our Jewish people that aren't really involved with particularist Jewish denominations, but they mm -hmm. do very much identify as part of the tribe and are very well aware of cultural and even religious trappings of Judaism and the Jewish people, but don't allow those trappings to put them in a particular box, which in ways... A Chabad rabbi would have, as evidenced by our relationship, philosophically a really easy time with someone like that. Ironically, and we talked about this actually in that Maury Rose episode, but your position on who is a Jew and my position on who is a Jew may have different whys, like what's the why of make someone who is a Jew, but we end up in the same place. Which is basically, sure. you're just a Jew. <laughs> After the show last night where I, I had talked about Judaism in some tiny ways, on the way out, some dude's like, give me props or whatever. But the way he did it, very nice. Didn't catch me. Just very nicely. He just goes, Jew. <laughs> I've never had that shouted at me in a nice way. I turned around. I was like, the, f and you know, the guy's like beaming. And I'm like, oh, uh, thank that, you. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. I know exactly what you mean. You get that a lot with kids too. Like they're just so pure that they just, oh, you identified as this, then that's mm. a good thing to call you by. And I don't mean anything, no harm with it. Right. So those are the first two segments of the umbrella. Then would be... How many segments are there? It depends how much you want to fine tune it. Well, there can't be more than six, can there? <laughs> <laughs> so Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism would be the next two. Originally... They had very large philosophical differences. Now, the differences really come down to minutia. The reform movement mm. became much more religious and prepared to identify as a minority and kind of adopt Jewish practices, which are uniquely Jewish, in ways that they didn't do until 30 years ago. If you read, you know, reform okay. literature, is all about activism. But it was, for most reform temples, it was forbidden to even wear a yarmulke inside until like 40 or 50 years what? ago. What? Yeah. Why? Wait, why? Because they're like, well, if you're going to... Because the idea was to retain the core Jewishness while still like like really assimilating. I don't think it was the core that. Jewishness even. It was, we were a backwards people for insisting to be different. And anything that we can't really explain logically that this is bettering society, we shouldn't adopt. They wanted to move services to Sunday. 
they had organs in their temples. Many still do. Some still do, I should say, because they wanted to adopt to the church. I finished a book of history from like the mid-18s from the Hasidic standpoint. And the Enlightenment was advocating for book burnings. Jews were advocating for book burnings of Jewish books for the majority of Torah Jewish books because it was in their mind you put on tefillin that's witchcraft this is of a backwards people and that ironically they've been longer against those books and lately they've in the last for sure 30 years or maybe stretch it back to 50 years they kind of said hey wait a second the reform movement and I say this in a good way they they came to the realization that if we simply just want to be like everyone else around us then at a certain point Jews will just say why don't we just not come then we'll really why don't we just not attend this group and then we'll really be like the people around right. us. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. Either it was subliminal or, or out in the open, but that was a big change in their thinking. Again, could be that reform people will dispute the particulars of, of my analysis, which is fair, but from the tens of books of history that I've been reading from that time period, to me, it, on the whole, it can't be debated. Maybe with like a fine comb, you could debate it, but broadly speaking, I got it right. Our hair is too curly with that kind of fine tooth comb that's one of the great paradoxes of judaism <laughs> right that's why we use our combs for everything else <laughs> exactly yeah we got the comb it comes in the kit <laughs> it's it comes there with the hotel well, room it's in the it's in the little uh swiss army knife you know i'm not gonna crack it off might as well put it to you somewhere what should we do oh i know we'll uh we'll drive ourselves nuts with neuroses and never come to an answer about anything or a way of being this okay but the real question people think about orthodoxy sorry and i'm skipping a couple of these yeah conservative basically said we want we believe in orthodox standards but we say that our people don't need to adhere to them because it's just very difficult that's the bottom line so it's this strange balance of looking at total observance as an ideal but saying that practically speaking, we can direct our members that they don't need to live up to that ideal fully. In the beginning, all conservative shuls, their rabbis were always orthodox for the majority of conservative history. In other words, because the rabbi was meant to live up to that ideal, they would not accept a conservative rabbi in their synagogue. They had to be orthodox. But now the conservative movement became more less observant. Let's just call a spade a spade and the reform movement like i said also became more observant so to speak or more more openly identifying with the judaism so they kind of met in the middle and in my opinion you could point to a particular shul but on the whole there are very very minor differences between the conservative movement and the reform movement like if you go into the subreddits with the experts they'll point to like oh you know they have 30 paragraphs in hebrew and the reform movement only has 17 <laughs> i'm like yeah that's technically a difference but to Everyone besides for one point zero point zero zero one percent of the world, nobody looks at that as a difference. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. Then where does modern orthodox fit into that? So then there's orthodoxy, and the orthodoxy is another segment of the umbrella. I would call it one segment of the umbrella. And then within that, there's different groups. The most progressive or worldly of orthodoxy probably is modern orthodoxy, which advocates for assimilation for everything outside of religion. So in other words, go to college, get a normal job, dress completely modern so long none of the dress directly goes contrary to jewish faith Uh uh-huh i'm trying to think of other big examples but there is no mitzvah in the modern orthodox world of saying hey let me build a fence around my particular community to protect it did you feel the presence of a fence like that you know not that it was going to be like a shock collar if you walked outside of it but did you feel any kind of pressure that was holding you inside of chabad it has both of these factors that we only have spoken so far about modern orthodoxy within the orthodox segment but Chabad would be Hasidic it's a Hasidic group so on the one hand observes totally 
all the Hasidic trappings and would probably be the last segment in this group. But the one Chabad philosophy that kind of makes a big difference is that we do say we can, you know, be in the world. Mm -hmm. And do you think it's fair to translate Hasidic as ultra-Orthodox? Like those terms are um, the thing that is what we mean when we say that? Sorry for cutting you off. Hasidic is... Classic ultra-Orthodox thing <laughs> to do. <laughs> Hasidic is a type of ultra-Orthodox, but many ultra-Orthodox people find problems with them being interchangeable. But yes, in the media, people call all ultra-Orthodox people Hasidic, but the truth is all Hasidic people are ultra-Orthodox, but not all ultra-Orthodox people are Hasidic. There's Lithuanian-style ultra-Orthodox, where they don't have a lot of the Hasidic emphasis on song, or revering the simple man, or storytelling, or, okay. or emphasis on joy. Those are very much Hasidic causes that came with the innovation of Hasidism around 400 years ago. So both of them would be ultra-Orthodox, but one side of it maybe let's say 40% of ultra-Orthodoxy is not Hasidic. Well, once again, somehow a, a, a goal of being like, so who are you? How'd you grow up? Turns turns into talking about like Lithuanian folk song traditions. <laughs> like, dude, we are a lost cause, my man. We are lost. There is no hope. Somehow I touched the comb. I ended up in Lithuania. What do you want from me? <laughs> There were other things that I felt like would have been helpful because when I was talking, I was telling you that I, I was like talking to friends and they're like, oh, that's helpful. Like nobody's ever really said that. And I don't know if we talked about this, but in the ultra Orthodox side, actually, I think it was all of that. It was grounded in very specific stuff. It was like when you see those people in Brooklyn that are like this and they ask you this, then they might be these mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. as opposed to this, which means that. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I have no idea. Like, I see a fur hat. All I know is that they're not Chabad Hasidic. That's all I know. <laughs> you don't have a big hat? You don't have one of those big hats? The furry yeah. ones? No. I've got, like, the fedora. Chabad wears fedoras. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds fantastic. I mean, I wish most of the world could just decide, eh, this is what we're doing for clothes now, okay? Let's, uh... Let's just, let's just right, keep doing right. this, but different colors and stuff. But let's calm down on... Right. I was hustling a local Jewish person because he was expressing this idea that observant Jews are so limited in their dress. I was like, you're just as limited, bro. Mm. You know what I mean? You would never wear, God forbid, to wear skinny jeans from 2013. That would be a, a travesty. You'd be completely out of touch in society. Oh, really? I'm like, it's just another form of limitation. Pause, you know? pause while I go address my wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> I was just giving a dumb example, but fine. Bell bottoms or whatever the hell. But, but Pause while I continue to address my wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, muskets, muskets at the side of your pants. Okay. <laughs> Those were in and then they were out. And then by having them go out, you were also forced by the trendsetters, you know, as if everybody is total pioneers in their ironic dress. I mean, even these FIT students, are you kidding? Do you think they're not looking over their shoulders when they assume their funky you know, ways of dressing? Of course they are. They're a little bit avant-garde 
for the rest of society, but within their society, that's the non-avant-garde. That's the expectations. And to wear something conventional, that would be avant-garde. You know, it's all relative. But And to say that a chassid, because he's dressing in black and white and furry hats, is limited, is a joke. We're all limited. And that's just how we are. Yeah. Maybe the real variable is just, are you trying to focus on constancy or are you trying to focus on change or call it development or or whatever but the reality is that i mean first of all that development goes in cycles and comes yeah, right back i mean people people right, wearing right. the shoes that right, we right. wore when i was in middle school and now it's like trendy and i go that's i'm like if i find those can i be cool again and it's like no <laughs> but somehow that's where we've ended up kind of at the end of the day they're both really about fitting in with a mentality the mm-hmm. the change or constancy element is actually kind of secondary it's really just about how do you match with a group so chabad no side locks none of the curly things that people would love to put on a caricature of a jew and you guys don't have them even though right. in terms of adherence observance to jewish traditions you do a lot how come not that one when the clan comes they're gonna be really annoyed it's gonna be harder to find you guys right in the torah it says you should keep your side locks the question is can you trim them and keep them or do you have to totally leave them completely uh pristine what does it actually say it it actually says like hey you know you know those sideburns things in front of your have you ever heard of elvis (laughs) yeah exactly they're like do you know general lee like what is it saying in the they call it the corners paas roshcha i think it means literally like the corners of your head ah paas so that's why they call it paas yeah maybe actually that i never thought of that yeah that's for sure where it comes from (laughs) Score one for the <laughs> semi-goyim. <laughs> so no cutting quarters. No cutting quarters? Are you sure this wasn't just a tiny, just a huge misunderstanding? It was a metaphor. God's like shaking this Orthodox Jew. The payas are like flying, like boing, boing, boing. God flopping around on mountains. He was like, I just told you, follow the, it's Ikea. Listen, just don't, just put the things together well. Have a nice work ethic. <laughs> What are you doing with your ear hair? (laughs) But you don't have them. I do. This area that's attaching my hair to my beard is the the sideburn area. So therefore, a haircut that gets cut right there would be forbidden. If you're just going to shave all of that off, then that would be forbidden. Got it. Got it. Let's just have hair there. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have a th- the top of your head shaved and have a... Um... Yeah, dude. They call that haircut the 770. You get a seven on one paya, seven on the other paya, and a zero <laughs> on top. The haircut is called the 770. They really do? No, I haven't done it. Those are like the really hardcore people. But for those that don't know, 770 is the, the global HQ of Chabad. So it's kind of a joke. But you could really do that, and that technically is like, yeah, that's kosher. It's more than kosher. It's hardcore. It's, oh, this guy really doesn't give a shit about how he looks. He must be a really deep person. It's a very twisted way of looking at a haircut, I think. <laughs> but it... If you went into Yale and you saw in the back of the library there was an old man, but he had messy hair, would you think he's a deeper professor or you wouldn't? Messy hair, yeah. But if he shaved his head into the shape of a quadratic equation with the formula <laughs> and a graph on it, I'd go, I think that dude spent a couple minutes this morning. You are now listening to the sound of Believer's Radio 770 on the AM dial. It all-
all started on a sunny day. But then came the rain clouds and they chased all the sun away. Now we're living through the thunder, too many going under. I wonder, there's gotta be another way. So I'll lift up the speakers the same way the Jew tends to lift up the speakers. I think the thing that I wonder about so much of the time is this call it a balance or a, or or the spectrum between breadth and depth in the way that most of the time you have to make some sort of choice and sacrifice for one in terms of the other and in terms of ritual practice you're in deep you're in deep you're more or less doing everything that's out there as far as what's been written and here's the thing to do that's right. part of jewish tradition and you'll do all of it and then i guess anything under the orthodox uh well not under because it's not a pyramid uh somewhere i don't know is somebody more out of the rain in the umbrella like are they more in the middle or is it really it's a really equal opportunity is it a golf umbrella like is it a big enough umbrella that nobody's like risking getting wet what's the rain in this metaphor what's the rain yeah what is the rain oh my god that's actually really true what what is 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 anybody being rained on or is it just for like the the general collective. If rain is total assimilation, then yeah, then if you want your grandkids to be still Jewish, the likeliest path will be further observance. The more you increase your observance, the likelier they'll be, which is obviously intuitive. Sure. I mean, that is where I think philosophically, I'm just like really pro breadth. Like I I just I just feel like I gravitate towards mm-hmm. trying to, you know, see more things and whatever. And yeah, then there does become a pull which makes it dissonant to to just exist in one way or to believe mm-hmm. one thing really firmly. I think one of the awesome things about Judaism is it's like, yeah, dude, we're big on metaphors. And at the end of the day, the spirit of the law feels more important than the letter of the law. But... I, what did I mean? No, you are right. You know, at the end of the day, it's not leather in and of itself that is exciting us about the tefillin. It's the fact that this has some spiritual significance and reminds us of things and gives us a chance to meditate and, and that we do it just because God said it's not the particularist of the actual act when it comes to ritual. The one thing I will say about depth and right. breadth is that there is this breaking point. This is my theory. I don't think I've seen this anywhere outside of just my own eyes. I've never seen it in Jewish texts. Sure. I wasn't sure where you were going with breadth, but with breadth, you could replace that with, let's say, worldliness or just being out there or experiencing more things. Is that what you mean by it? It's not just the experience. I think it's also the practice. You know, it's also it's also just what I do every day yeah. is vaguer, is softer, you know, and it doesn't have this, it doesn't have the structure mm-hmm. that goes with, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get in, let's get in deep to this, to this one Mm-hmm. way of being so yeah with that definition of breadth then yeah you're probably right breadth and depth do not go together but if breadth means i'm open to experiencing more things getting to know more people or cultures or viewpoints and all that there's a breaking point in depth that actually is really consistent with breadth so there's here let's have let's say there's three levels so this is true with all particular tribes it could be a type of indian person and this would be true too i think it's it's pretty broad i'm just talking in the jewish context because that's what i know But if you have the most shallow level of depth in your particular group, then yeah, breadth is really easy. You can still experience a lot of things, you know, be worldly, get to know other people. At this middle level of depth, you're forced to say, "Uh -uh, that's not for me because there's a chance that perhaps I won't be able to retain my Jewishness if I get really broad and and go out there. Mm -hmm. 
But then the deepest, the third level and the, the deepest makes a person so confident with their identity and not just so confident, but also so knowledgeable. It, it makes it so much easier for him to navigate pitfalls, right? So if I only have level two of depth, everything potentially could harm my Judaism. Everything potentially is something to uh-huh, be afraid uh-huh, of uh-huh. because who knows? Yeah, you know, like I just an existential have, threat. I just don't have the knowledge. But the mm-hmm. level three comes with this map, with this level of knowledge and confidence to say, oh yeah, I know Judaism so well and I'm so at ease with who I am as a person that I could be in Nigeria and hanging out with a bunch of Nigerian stand-up comics and I'm still totally identifying with my Jewishness because I have that map, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, right. There's a, there's a absolutely a way of being raised and understanding things so that you don't stub your toe on Santa Claus, right? <laughs> but but then it still is the difference to me between understanding and practice. What are you actually doing? And that's where again, I don't think it's a zero sum game. Breadth and depth. I mean, and, and that's and that's part of why I think I've grown towards like doing more things. And not really out of belief, I think, in the in the strictest sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe this taps into what you're saying about being sure and knowledgeable about your own Judaism. But it's some some joke last night that I made in front of a relatively religious crowd. I, I think statistically is I would believe. And uh, I said something about like Jews controlling the weather. And then I said, well, you know, that's obviously not real. Guys, that myth is not real. <laughs> Just like God, um, <laughs> you know, silence. But that was a joke for me. I mean, it was a. It was also like a let's test the waters and let's see what's happening. Right. So I don't think I've changed in that sense. But yeah, man, do the seders, light Shabbat candles if you can, keep the Yom Kippur fast. It has it, that's practice that adds depth and it sacrifices nothing. It sacrifices absolutely nothing to me. Mm. And then even you know when you're your Chabad bros like really hit the jackpot, I guess, with me like finding me out in Abu Dhabi when they were when they were out there a while ago. Going, you've never been technically bar mitzvah, which I don't I don't know exactly how you define it, but you know, obviously, legally, in some way, you turn thirteen, you are a bar mitzvah. But then there's then there's the ritual right. practice. Those guys right, right, right. never did that. You never did that. Oh my God, the guy's looking over at his guy, going, Moshe, ding 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 ding. We hit all sevens. I don't know what that number means, obviously, <laughs> but there's a shape. There's a sort of triangular shape, and there's three of them. We got to have one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. How would you define it? What's the what's the legal definition of like actually having a bar mitzvah? Oh, you where, said- where, where that doesn't that doesn't imply you try to go to Rebecca's like party without going to the shul for their services, but you go to Jacob's service, but you try to go to both of the parties on that Saturday because there's so many bar mitzvahs. Right. But what's the actual? So in the Torah, it describes this uh, this ritual of chocolate fondue no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> a little part of me going well hold on hold on hold on maybe you're like well every bar mitzvah had one you said it well i don't even need to say it you said it well so then what was it that these guys thought was actually happening for somebody that they were doing for somebody that was you know like me under my particular part of the parasol what did they what were they actually so stoked about they saw a good deed you know most jewish people even if they're not uh observant they do good deeds between man and man like i'm sure you've helped many people even though you haven't put on tefillin yet so when a chabad person hi i'm kim gottlieb i'm jewish and i'm gay and my life changed when my rabbi came over to me one day and said 
Are you into leather? Now I enjoyed the double entendre, but what he was actually referring to was, was I interested in starting to put on tefillin, which are these two boxes which have little prayers in them. One goes on the hand and the other on the head. So it goes on the muscle and it's wound around seven times. We stop at this point, then put on the one for the head. Our head is so full of thoughts that sometimes we stray away from what is good and best for the world. So when a Chabad person is out there in the street or in a foreign country or whatever, and they meet a Jewish person, they assume that regarding mitzvot between man and man, good deeds between man and man, they're fine. It's just a few ritualistic mitzvot, good deeds that are between man and God, that maybe because they're meeting this rabbi or this rabbinical student, now maybe you could offer them that opportunity. So they put on tefillin with you. Tefillin uh, is one of many mitzvot, but it's one that Chabad, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, chose to emphasize. And even though life changes from moment to moment, putting on tefillin remains a consistent aspect of my ritual life. What did you know people, or what do you think it would take for somebody to lose their faith or abandon the practices? Well, of the people in my yeshiva, I'd say a certain amount did. I don't know if this is true, but from anecdotal experience, when a Chabad person becomes irreligious, he doesn't do it, or she doesn't do it in a rebellious hate-filled way. There are exceptions. It's mostly just, I don't want to live with this life. It's uncomfortable or I find little meaning in it, but it's still, in most cases, respectful, probably because A, they're primed for it because they're more worldly, and B, the community is more primed for it because they're worldly. So just seeing a member in the rest of the world as a secular person is less jarring. But in other groups, there's a lot of drama with when someone decides to leave the faith. Mm -hmm. There's full-on organization, like not-for-profits, which don't judge and help people with that acclimation, where they're just lost their entire support group. They don't have any money in many cases if they decided to do this at 18. They don't have money to put themselves through college or even some people that are in very cloistered Hasidic groups, and I don't use that word, in a bad way, but it's just the reality. They're much more to themselves. They may not even speak English fluently. They speak Yiddish, and then boom, they decided that they no longer want to be observant, and they're supposed to figure it out in the broader world. This organization will help them speak English. Sure. So there's that dynamic. So your question was, what happens when it happens? Each situation is its own thing. There's family Mm -hmm. dynamics at play, which each family has its own story. There's individual personalities involved. There's the school they went to, the friends they had, and in most cases still have. The friends of mine that decided that they don't want to stay observant, I talk to them all the time. We crack jokes about insider stuff. They still know the lingo. They still have the lingo completely, Mm -hmm. you know? Sure, right, right. Yeah, I I guess that goes back to what you're talking about, the strength of your own sense of self. So if somebody goes from being kind of right where you are to not, it doesn't threaten the meaning of everything that you're doing by the fact that they said, ah, no, actually, I now find it meaningless. I think that's true. I was talking to a comic yesterday who said, I think I'm going to do a one hour special. And when that's done, I'm done. And comedians, I mean, that's a you might as well might be just as religious as of an orientation as anything else right. in terms of just structures of meaning. I mean, for the most part, it's kind of the opposite. It's kind of everything is fungible, potentially meaningless, paradoxical, etc. But the idea of somebody leaving that 
it also feels like it feels like the same kind of abdication. So much of being a comedian, the good ones. There are a lot of comedians just <laughs> I'm not saying I mean obviously a lot of comedians suck, but then there's a lot of comedians that are not naturally comedians, but they work on it. And if you work on your act for hours and hours and hours and hours, basically anybody could eventually come out with a 10 minute bit. But I'm talking about like the real naturals in comedy. A lot of it has to do with just their natural disposition as people. They're quicker on their feet. They're irreverent. They're smart. They're good with words. And when somebody chooses to stop being a comedian as a profession, I think all of those things stay. So they still would fit very much in those dinner parties comprised of comedians. Right. That's true. That's true. Like so many other podcasts, these all is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace. We heard there was a podcast, so Squarespace. As always, this all is brought to you by the Dill Farmers Association of America. Remember to put dill in everything. It's just that simple. The DFAA says, remember, remember the, the old, old country, country or, or piss, piss on, on your ancestors' graves. It's, it's up to you. Up to you. There's so many subgroups, which is a variable for itself. But then within each subgroup, there's levels of adherences, right? So within Chabad, maybe I fall in the middle level of observance, but there's definitely people that are less observant, even of Chabad customs and practice than I am, even that still are totally Chabad, and people that are more. And the same is true in all the other groups. So it is very confusing because you'll see someone orthodox and you say, oh, that's a total representation of this entire orthodox group, where in certain things, it would be a, a good representation to understand that entire group within orthodoxy. But sometimes the dude just likes eating, you know, likes eating ice cream. And that's not practice, you know, right? It's, it's, it's just, right. he just likes eating ice cream, just dude eating ice cream. So don't overthink it. Right. The things that a person does and doesn't, that's actually interesting to think about it as adherence and not orthodoxy and thinking about those as, as separate variables. Like if you're a reformed Jew, there's certain things that you've signed on and saying like, here's the, here's the kind of stuff that I do and I'll either try and do them or I say whatever. That's, exactly. like, that's my book. Exactly. Yeah, there is the whole range of how much do you actually do those things and those being separate. And, and, and maybe right. that's where some of the categories come in of mm -hmm. having a person say, what are the things you're even trying to do? And some of those come down to mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm not trying to keep kosher. It's not a thing. I'm not trying to uh, grow out side locks or whatever. It's just right, literally right. not on my to-do list and will never be. So it's not a question of how much I'm adhering to that. It's just not right. in the book. Yeah. So you got both of those factors. In other words, what does your ideal religious person look like? And how are you doing living up to that ideal? Which are two separate questions and kind of harder to, to judge. Well, that is it for episode 40, which is, uh, which is you know, a, a meaningful number in... in, in some context i guess i would suggest uh celebrating our 40th episode with a bottle of ararat armenian cognac they're very good you can get it from almost anywhere that sells armenian cognac peace out yidin toxin
my life changed when my rabbi came over to me one day and said, are you into leather? <laughs>